Hello, church. If you would open to John 19. John chapter 19. We will pick up where we left off last week. Uh, We looked at verse 28 and 29. We'll look at 30 today, but I'm going to just read those three verses again. Jesus is on the cross. He's in this last six hours on the cross toward the very end of that time. We pick up in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And so, Father, we remember that 2,000 years ago, this happened. This is a historical record. And we praise You that You've preserved it. That we could hear it 2023 and think about what You said on the cross and why You said it. And so, Holy Spirit, We ask that You be our teacher. That You illuminate. That You clarify. That You enlighten us to what You meant by this statement. We pray that we would understand those three words and that we would leave changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start by asking uh, a question. It's a, it's a weird question, but it's a question that makes sense since we've been in the Gospel of John so long now. It's been hundreds of hours, if you count time here and also in city groups. Um, the question is this, if all 66 books of the Bible were a mountain range, which books would have the highest peak? Which books would be the greatest and closest to heaven? If all 66 books of the Bible are a mountain range, now many people would say Romans would stand above all. And we studied Romans as a church for four years. It is glorious. And we can see why people would say that. Uh, Many others would say the Gospel of John. We've studied John now for seven years, and I hope we can see why people would say that. I personally think they both stand by each other uh, above all other books of the Bible, uh, reaching very high into the heavens. And so as we've been studying the Gospel of John, I've been, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, looking forward to John 19.30 as the peak of the mountain. And, uh, and so as we're studying this and, and, and moving toward the, the tip of this mountain, what I've actually uh, realized at this point is you don't ever reach the top of this mountain. You, you, you don't reach the top of the mountain because when you get to where you think is the top of the mountain, you realize it keeps going. Like, it's in the clouds. You can't see how, how it keeps ascending up into the heavens. And it says in First Peter, the angels long to look into the Gospel. The angels in heaven. Even in heaven, we will still be trying to fully grasp uh, what we see in this passage. 
And so I, I say all of that to, to just say this. Uh, this is far more glorious than I can explain today. Um, I have not myself understood, nor could I explain the glories of the cross of Christ. No preacher can. It is not possible. I don't have the words. I don't have the ability. I don't have the full understanding of the depths and the heights and the widths and the breadths of the glory of Christ that's revealed in the cross. And so, when I stand up here to preach on something like this, um, please understand, I am not after an eloquent sermon or for you to say, oh wow, I learned something new today. That is not the goal. Uh, Paul said when he came to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness with much trembling. My speech and my message were not with eloquent words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit in power so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the goal of a sermon is that God would take this pitiful thing called preaching and He would help us somehow by His Spirit to see more of the glory of His Son. That's what preaching is. That's what we're doing. We're dependent on the Spirit to make Christ clear. And so the goal is very simple. We just want to look at verse 30. And specifically in verse 30, that one little statement. It's three words in English. It is finished. In Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. Paid in full. I don't know if there's ever been a, a Greek word, any word, but, but Greek word, most words in the New Testament are Greek, uh, that's greater than this word. It's just, it stands alone in its majesty. Our, our, uh, J.C. Ryle said, of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more, none is more remarkable than tetelestai. Charles Simeon adds, since the foundation of the world, there was never a single word uttered in which such diversity and important, uh, important matter was contained. Every word, indeed, that proceeded from the Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration, but to Tetelestai eclipses all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or angels. Its heights, its depths, its lengths, its breadths are unsearchable. And A.W. Pink said, Eternity will be needed to make manifest all that tetelestai means. And Jesus didn't whisper this or mumble this on the cross. Matthew and Mark say He cried out tetelestai. It is finished. And I just wonder if we were there to, to hear this, to see Christ on the cross and hear this come out of His mouth, what are we thinking? It is finished. We're, we're probably thinking, what is it? What does He mean by it? It is finished. What is the it? What is He referring to? He thinks He's accomplished something. What is it that He thinks He's accomplished? And so I have just one question. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? That's the only question we should ask today and seek to answer. I have three answers actually to that question. 
But what did Christ seek to accomplish on the cross? And I think He accomplished three things in His death, and there's mystery in all three of these, but I just want to put them before us, and I'll start with this one. On the cross, Jesus gave the clearest revelation of God's glory that there ever was. On the cross, He gave the clearest revelation of God's glory. Nowhere is God's glory more manifest than in the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus' death revealed the glory of God in all of God's manifold perfections. That is, all of His attributes in perfect symmetry. Working together in perfect harmony in this moment of the cross. Uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Can you know the power of God apart from the cross? You can't. To understand that attribute, we need the cross. The word of the cross. He says later, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So can the world know the wisdom of God or the power of God apart from preaching Christ crucified? They cannot. It is the wisdom and the power of God. And so the cross does not compromise God's character, it amplifies it. It clarifies it. One author said, on the cross, we have a simultaneous explosion of the divine perfections. And listen to how Paul says it in Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is the law? It's the revealed righteousness of God. It's His righteousness. Standard, but it says the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And then he says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this is a key phrase. This, that is the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, this was to show His righteousness. At the present time, for in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So, the putting forth of His Son and the sacrifice of His Son manifested His righteousness, it says, and His justice, and it was able to justify the ungodly, which is what grace does. So we see His grace, we see His love, many other attributes in the justifying of sinners. All these attributes of God displayed in what? The cross. The cross of Christ. People say, how do I know God? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. His character is revealed there. 
How do we know the love of God? Look to the cross of Christ. How do we know the grace of God? Look to the cross of Christ. How do I know the righteousness or the justice or the, or, or the holiness of God? Look to the cross of Christ. Psalm 85. Uh, the psalmist looking forward to this moment of the cross said this, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. At the cross, God's attributes are operating in a perfect harmony, a perfect symmetry. This isn't a divine power play. This is an act of immense love and strength. I love how uh, Isaiah 53 describes it. it. It describes the coming Christ as the arm of the Lord. So you think God's flexing His arm which is impressive when God flexes His arm. The arm of the Lord has been revealed, and then listen to the surprising way it's described. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom we... Men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us Peace, and with His wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, and everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus said, it is finished, He's saying, I've done what Adam failed to do. Adam was charged to go out with the image of God and to spread the image and glory of God all over the earth. Adam failed. Christ did not fail. Christ has not only been the image of God, but spread the glory and the image of God all over the earth. And nowhere was that done more clearly than at the cross. John 17, a few hours before the cross, Jesus said, I have glorified you. He said this in prayer to the Father. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Which leads to the second thing to see here. Jesus' cry, it is finished, means He accomplished everything on earth necessary to save sinners. That cry, to telestai, means He accomplished everything on earth necessary to save sinners. All the work of salvation for sinners. Done. Full price for our redemption paid. All of human history leading up to this moment. And He says, I've accomplished it. And guys, can we just marvel at this for a minute? Can we just marvel at at what He did? I mean, I'm just proclaiming the Gospel today. So if, if somebody asks, one of your kids asks later, when did the preacher preach the gospel today? Just say, the whole sermon was a proclamation of the gospel. That's all that we're doing today. And this is just proclaiming 
the good news of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. Evangelion. The, the good news. And, and in the original context, it meant good news of military victory. Something that was won. Something that was achieved over an enemy. That the king has come and he has conquered and he has set up his kingdom. That is the good news of the gospel. Uh, I was, uh, we were sitting and having a a little family devotion earlier this week, and we were reading in Mark uh, chapter 2 when Jesus heals the paralytic. And um, one of the things that we were talking about is how he said, Your sins are forgiven. To the sick man, he wants to talk about sin and his ability to forgive sin. And, um, the uh, the religious leaders were there and they're saying he's blaspheming. Who does he think he is? Only God forgives sin. And I was saying to the kids, if Jesus can forgive sin on earth, and he had authority to forgive sin on earth, how much more now, after his death and resurrection, can he forgive our sins? Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. People said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why I eat with tax collectors and sinners. I came to receive them. Somebody needs to hear this today because you come in church and you're like, man, I don't, I'm not worthy. I can't sing. I can't go to the table. I don't, I'm unworthy. I'm, un, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus came to save sinners. That's who, he, that's who He came for. He said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. You need to let that land on you. Some of the self-righteous, I hope you feel very uncomfortable with that statement. That it actually bothers you because you look around and you think you're better than everybody else. I parent better. I know more. I'm better at this. They're not as good at this. And, and, and you don't, may never say those things, but you feel them. And hopefully it bothers you that Christ said, I didn't come for the righteous. Those who believe themselves so righteous. I came for sinners. This is the one. And, and did Jesus not show us this on the cross with how He dealt with the thief? That He said, come with me to paradise today. This is a, a doctrine that Pastor Kent covered recently. You'll remember called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Uh, the definition is this. The covenant of redemption is the eternal plan of the triune God to redeem a people unto Himself through His Son. The eternal plan of the triune God to redeem a people unto Himself through His Son. That's what Jesus says, it's finished. I've done it. I've accomplished this work. That's what He's praying about in John 17. I have glorified you on earth having accomplished, same word, same root word, the work you gave me to do. So the work is the plan of salvation from the triune God who determined before the foundation of the world to save a sinful people. John the Baptist knew this when he, he, he pointed out to the crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And... Uh, it's been amazing studying the Gospel of John because you have, all these, you have all these enemies, 
all these people who are seeking to hinder and stop what Christ is going to do for sinners. You have the Judases, Satan himself, you have the Jews, you have Pilate and Herod, and they're all seeking to work against God, but somehow they get swallowed up into and become unwilling participants in that redemptive plan of God. They aren't able to stop what God is doing in Christ to redeem a people to Himself. They aren't able to hinder the resilience of the Son of God to go to the cross on behalf of sinners. Christ will not be thrown off course by anything or anyone. In fact, all apparent hindrances are shown to be part of the plan in which God brings about the salvation of sinners. Herod's attempt to kill Jesus, remember that? Right at the beginning of his life. So they had to run to Egypt, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, to go to Egypt to, to flee. That was actually fulfilling a prophecy from Hosea 11 that says, out of Egypt I've called my son. Their attempts to kill Jesus only helped to fulfill the plan. And so is the case with 355 prophecies. That people are trying to stop and somehow God works and weaves those into the whole narrative. Galatians 4.4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus had to be born of a Jewish woman who was a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. All of these details had to occur, and they did. This wasn't random. I, I, I hope, you know, Jesus didn't wake up and go, I just I want to love some sad people today and heal some sick people. You know, just kind of wherever they come, I'm just going to kind of do that. He says, I came to fulfill all righteousness. He, he had a plan. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not a dot will pass from the law until what? All is accomplished. Interesting choice of words. Because when He accomplished what He accomplished on the cross, something happened to the law. Uh, Remember in the narrative, uh, I think it's in Matthew 27, it's in Mark as well, and in the telling of the crucifixion, it says something significant. It doesn't say this in John, but it says it in the other Gospels. When he breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? It means the whole Old Testament and sacrificial system, the blood of goats and bulls, the priests, the Old Testament feasts and festivals, everything under that mosaic system was finished. It had fulfilled its purpose. It was fulfilled. Colossians says the law was a shadow of what was to come, but Christ, the substance, when He came, the shadows go away. Because Christ is the temple. He is the blood sacrifice. He is the high priest. He is the offering for sin. He is the Sabbath rest. And, it, and look, it wasn't just some robotic, mechanical, fulfill this prophecy, do this law. You know, this was all, this was what love looks like. 
love for the Father and love for neighbor. That's what he's doing. He's loving the Father with all, all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, and then what flows out of it is perfect law-keeping. Fulfillment of prophecy. Absolutely amazing. And we just can't comprehend because we don't understand this unbroken fellowship that he had with the Father and how, how intimate his relationship was, was with the Father to understand the hell that he endured on the cross when he was separated from his Father. It was the darkest hell for Christ and he endured it for us, even the wrath of God. And there were people watching that day and many of them were unaffected by these things. But I just want to highlight the centurion for a minute. There was a centurion there. In Mark 15, 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. So the centurion hears Him say, It is finished. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that in this way He breathed His last, He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. A centurion had likely seen hundreds, I think that's a fair estimate, of criminals crucified on Roman crosses. And, I mean, this is his job. He watches people die for a living. And he helps them to die in painful ways. And to do it according to Roman protocol. He's seen perverse things. He's probably desensitized to the profanity and the evil that he sees on a daily basis. And he's standing there. And it, I mean, you can read about the Roman crucifixions. There's historical information out there outside of Scripture to show what these were like. They're R-rated. And then contrast that with watching Jesus die on that cross. The purity, the innocence, the lack of sin. And not only that, the amount of love that is coming from him. He's seeking to care for his mother. We spent four weeks on that. Remember that? Not defending himself of the mockery and slander, but saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was welcoming a thief into heaven. He's longing not to get off the cross, but to have God back. So he's saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants God back. What a strange thing for this centurion to see. Never seen anything like this. And look at how it reads. When the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Matthew 27.47 says, when the centurion saw what had taken place, this is a, a, another account, he praised God. Sounds like that man may have been converted in that moment, if not then, likely later. Saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. I don't think it's speculation to say that centurion, something happened to him that day. And many other, others watching that went home, it says, beating their breasts, saying this was an innocent man. This was the Son of God who just died. That some of those people weren't in the church later in Jerusalem as believers. 
because of what they witnessed in Christ's death. It's amazing how He saved sinners at the cross. And still does. And still does. Uh, Thirdly, and lastly, because Christ can do more than one thing in His death, He multitasks. Uh, He accomplished a third thing. He is conquering evil. He is conquering evil. Evil. This this third point is very essential for the good news to be the good news. Um, think back to the first appearance of evil that would be in the garden. Satan, the serpent, came to Adam and Eve to tempt them to sin, and they did sin. And then God goes to the serpent and says, "This he that is someone in the future. We don't know at this point who the he is. We later realize who." That he is, but he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And at some points in redemptive history, it seemed like the evil was overcoming the good, like that prophecy might not be fully fulfilled. Especially at the cross, it seemed that the evil had won. Um, don't be deceived. that dying Jew struck a mortal blow to the head of the serpent. And in that moment, victory was won. A mortally wounded serpent from Genesis 3, that prophecy was fulfilled in the death of Christ. How how did captives get set free? How do people get freed from sin? How could his death set free from slavery the Gentile nations that were kept in bondage? How are they now able to be saved and brought in? This is very significant when it comes to Christ attacking and overcoming evil. Uh, Matthew 12 Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. I believe the strong man is Satan. In the context, I don't think that's disputable. I think he bound the strong man at the cross. The first coming of Christ, I believe is talked about in Revelation 20 verse 2, that he sees the dragon, that is the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. That is the whole church age. The second coming of Christ, I believe is talked about right after that in Revelation 20 verse 8, when it says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll have a battle it talks about, and then it says, the devil who had deceived them, would then be thrown into the lake of fire. So what he started at the cross, he will finish at his second coming. And I don't think it's wrong to bring up eschatology when we're talking about the cross. I won't linger there, uh, just for sake of time today. But there are eschatological victories won in his death. We should never forget that. 
What looked like Satan's greatest triumph was in reality the hour of his ultimate defeat. Jesus said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Satan's not yet in that bottomless pit. But the sentence was made. The doom was certain. The power was broken at the cross. The devil is a defeated enemy for the Christian. He's a defeated enemy. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death, that is Christ's death, He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Through his death, He would destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14. Colossians 1.13. Believers have, it says, already been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son. Some have said it this way, uh, the devil is all bite with no teeth. He can gnaw at you, and that isn't comfortable, and that can cause you uh, great harm, but he can't bite you into eternal damnation. He's been defanged for the believer. And that happened at the cross. First John says believers have overcome the evil one. Second uh, Corinthians 2.14, Christ leads us now in tri- triumphal procession. James 4 says that believers are able to resist the devil and then he will flee from them. Romans 16 says that Christ will soon put the devil under our feet. You say, did Christ really accomplish all that on the cross? And more so. There's one really significant Colossians 2.13 says this, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, and He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Nobody doubts that, right? He forgave sin at the cross. But listen to what it goes on. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And there's three verbs that are used there. The first, Christ disarmed. He, he took the weapons away, which some would say are verbal because Satan's greatest power is the accuser of the brothers. There's two ways you could understand that. He silenced those accusations so that they have no validity for us. Second, he made a public, public spectacle of them showing their powers are powerless. And third, uh, he has been, he was triumphing over the devil even in the wilderness, resisting all the temptations. But at the cross, he overthrew all principalities and powers. He really was victorious at the cross. He didn't see it as defeat, guys. He saw it as victory. It is finished. Was a victory cry. It was not a. Oh, finally done with all this. I can just go back to heaven. It was a cry of victory, and he knew it. In fact, I was I mentioned our city group. I forgot to say this last week when we were talking about that phrase, I thirst. And we got into all these meanings last week, but what I failed to say was one one way that some people interpret why Jesus said this and allowed them to give him the sour wine is so that he could get out of his mouth that was so dry and thirsty, he could get out of his mouth, it is finished. 
that, that it wetted his mouth just enough to say those words before death. And it seems that that could be the case. Never before or after has a word been spoken like this shout of victory. And he said it, and he laid down his life when he was ready to. Look also at this passage. It says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Voluntarily. When he wanted to. When he wanted to. When he chose to. Uh, John 10.17 says, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Nobody took his life. He gave it. He gave it. Listen to this beautiful hymn called Christ the Victor. His be the victor's name who fought our fight alone. Triumphant saints to honor claim their quest was his own. By weakness and defeat, He won the mead and the crown. Trod all our foes beneath His feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low, made sin, He sin overthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, in death by dying slew. Blessed, blessed the, conquered, the conqueror slain, slain by divine decree, who lives in who died, who lives again for Thee, His saint, for Thee. We sing a simpler version of that awesome hymn uh, when we sing full atonement. Can it be? Yeah, it is. Full atonement. Meaning, past sin, your past sin, your Present, whatever present means, because everything is either past or present, but we always say present sin, and your future sin canceled. The record of death that stood against you canceled. All of it. Which it doesn't land on us how good that news is because we don't understand how sinful we are. I don't understand how sinful you are. You don't understand how sinful you are. Christ understood how sinful we were. And yet He canceled it all. And He dealt with it all at the cross. Let me just close with one, one last question. What happened on that tree in Golgotha? I just want you to think about it again. What happened there from, from noon until 3 p.m.? It says the darkness came, covered the face of the earth. What happened when the people ran out of jokes and they stopped mocking and everybody got tired of just laughing and saying their profanities and their vulgarities and He's just hanging there? What happened when Christ hung on that cross? Because the answer to that question, our eternity hinges on the answer to that question. And I'm not asking if you believed if it happened or not. The devil would say, absolutely, I believe that happened. I watched it happen. Believing that it actually happened historically is important, but it doesn't move us into salvation. I want to think one last time about this thief. Luke 23 said this, verse 40. But the other one, that is the one that was not 
mocking Christ at this moment. It says the other one rebuked the other thief, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus could assure him of heaven in that moment because he saw Christ as the doorway to heaven. He saw Christ as the doorway to heaven, the only doorway into heaven. That thief hung there moments from death, moments from judgment, moments from standing before his maker and most definitely receiving a sentence of hell. They don't put people on Roman crosses for any reason. This wasn't a moral guy. Okay? He, he, he was not a good man. We don't know anything about his sin, but he was there justly, and he even knew that. In fact, him knowing that was actually significant. Because that's where salvation starts. He said, we're here justly. We deserve to die for our sins. We're the wrong ones. He's the innocent one. He doesn't deserve to be on this cross. That's where salvation starts. You see your sin, you see the innocence of Christ. But then, at some point, you have to turn to Christ and say what this thief said. Jesus, would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? You see how it gets personal at that point? It's no longer just talking theology and doctrine. Can I come in to heaven with you? And it says that day, he walked into paradise with Christ. At the same moment as Christ, that criminal who didn't know doctrine, who had never been baptized, who never took the supper, who didn't know anything about membership to a church, walked into heaven with Christ. Why? Because he knew Christ is my only hope. Christ is my only hope of paradise, of forgiveness. And that faith will save you. Do you think you can turn to Christ like that thief did and He won't welcome you and show the same compassion to you that He showed to the thief? I assure you, He will. He will. And He'll welcome you in as well. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, just lastly, as we prepare to go to the table, I want to point out just one thing that landed on me this morning. I thought about just, not only is it merciful that this thief was hanging there next to Jesus, but think of, he could have been crucified on Thursday, the next Tuesday. The mercy of God that he was hanging next to Jesus on Friday the providence of God in that man's life, he had no idea the greatest thing that ever happened to him was he was crucified on Friday right next to Jesus. And, and I was just thinking, you know, the same thing is true in our lives. There are bad things that have even happened to us, but it put us next to Christ. And it helped us to see our need for Christ. 
And that's God's grace in our lives. And sometimes the worst things that happen are, are what get us into paradise. Because it's, it's then we finally have to reckon with Christ. And that's an amazing, amazing hope. Church, I want us to just come to the table. Um, I don't think I need to say anything. I mean, if we can't come to the table and rejoice in Christ after thinking about the cross, I don't know what will get us happy at the table. Um, if, you're, if you're baptized and you've believed in Christ, please come and join us. Uh, if you have not, there are prayers there uh, in the bulletin that are meaningful for you. I would encourage you to think deeply about what Christ has accomplished. And when we come, I want to just say one thing. We're going to have this song sung today. I believe. Um, hope I'm not wrong on this. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Father, You paid it all. What a freeing message. No religion teaches anything like this. We thank You that You died for sins. You've canceled our record of debt. You've cleansed us. And You've given us the hope of paradise through what You did on the cross, just like that thief. And so Lord, we pray that this Gospel, Lord, would empower us, would liberate us, would change us, would humble us in all the best ways possible, and that we could just be a happy people as we journey to that new Jerusalem. Lord, help us this week. Help us as we come to the table to worship and make much of Your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen.